Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. morning. It's Friday, February 16th. The war in the Middle East is now 133 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I don't know about you, but I get the feeling that this war is about to take some unexpected twists and turns, as if it hasn't already. And I don't know if this is good news. In the Middle East, it usually isn't, but I'm going to keep holding out hope, and I'm going to keep sharing what I deem to be the most important news coming out of the region. So please do keep tuning in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday here on the FDD Morning Brief. Today, we'll hear from Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. Gilad Erdan is Israel's former Minister of Strategic Affairs. He now finds himself on the front lines of the diplomatic battle at Turtle Bay. He'll tell us a little bit about his day job in just a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the timelines of the Gaza war. There are at least six of them, and they don't align, so my brain hurts. The first timeline is the time that Israel needs to win. The IDF has wrested most of Gaza from the hands of Hamas, but it needs more time to finish the job, particularly in the town of Rafah. But therein lies the problem. The second timeline is the U.S. political timeline. The deeper we get into the election cycle here, the less time the White House wants to give the Israelis. They want this war out of the headlines pronto. So the Israelis are scrambling to finish things quickly. That is encumbered by a third timeline, the Palestinian religious calendar. The upcoming holiday of Ramadan will start on March 11th. This month of fasting by day and feasting by night usually triggers tension and even violence in the Palestinian arena. So whatever maneuvers Israel makes on the battlefield, they probably need to end by March 10th and then resume again on April 12th, give or take. A fourth factor is Israel's political timeline. A large number of Israelis would like to see Prime Minister Netanyahu out of office, but a large number would also like to see him stay. When Israel finally arrives at that moment of truth, it's hard to say, but we can't ignore this dynamic either. A fifth timeline is the time the hostages have left. Nobody knows for sure, but my sense is that the hourglass is running out of sand. And then a final factor is economic. This war has hit Israel in the pocketbook, and there is only so much economic pain the Israelis can endure. So how do we reconcile these six timelines? I have no idea. The next three weeks leading up to Ramadan will likely help to clarify. Clear as mud? Yep. Now you know what I think about when I can't sleep. Okay, time for headlines. Headline one, the IDF raided the Al Nasser Hospital yesterday in southern Gaza. Here we go again, right? The Israelis took action based on the debriefings they received from freed hostages and from Hamas prisoners. The hospital was said to hold the bodies of hostages previously. Unfortunately, the Israelis did not find anything, at least from what we've heard so far, but they did apprehend no less than 20 fighters who actually took part in the 10-7 massacre. That seems worthwhile to me. Or was it? Once again, the media went on a feeding frenzy. The Qatari-owned Al Jazeera network was was nothing short of vitriolic. So was Hezbollah's Mayadeen television. That says a lot, by the way, about our so-called friends in Qatar that they report the news like Hezbollah. 
Our media took a few shots at the IDF over the raid as well. But I will say this, the vitriol in the U.S. seems to be losing at least a little steam on the hospitals after having been wrong about purported massacres at the Al-Shifa and Al-Ahli hospitals in northern Gaza. There may even be some contrition. Maybe. Headline two, the IDF killed two senior Hezbollahis yesterday. This was a reprisal. The Iran-backed group in Lebanon actually killed a female soldier in Israel, and Hezbollah now vows that attacks will continue so long as the war in Gaza continues. Indeed, those rockets keep coming, and as a result, the Israeli counterstrikes in Lebanon are deeper north, more meaningful, more daring. Some Israelis I've talked to say that the odds of war in the North are much higher than they were even a few days ago. And the White House knows this, and this is why they're doing everything possible to pave the way for some kind of diplomatic deal that would push Hezbollah north of the Latani River. All they are saying, you know, is give peace a chance. But I have my doubts as to whether they are talking to anyone in Lebanon who can actually move this mountain. I mean, how does one negotiate with a failed state? And that is, of course, what Lebanon is. Finally, headline three, FBI Director Christopher Wray made an unannounced visit to Israel yesterday. Here's what we know. Wray met with the Mossad and the Shin Bet. He also met with FBI agents based in Israel. People sometimes forget that there are 30 or so American Israelis currently being held by Hamas. They are the jurisdiction of the FBI. So I'm glad to see the U.S. more actively involved, and I hope they can play a part in bringing those Americans home. The Bureau might even take part in other law enforcement actions involving Hamas financiers in America, dare to dream. But is there something else going on? Because Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, also paid a snap visit to Israel. That's a lot of senior American spooks on American soil in one day. Look, I don't have any insider information here, but either there is something big about to go down in Gaza or the pressure on Israel is mounting to wrap up the war. Your take on this is a pretty good indication of whether you're a glass half empty or a glass half full type of person. As for me, I'm hopeful, but I'm rarely optimistic. Okay. It's now my honor to introduce Ambassador Gilad Erdan. I met the ambassador almost a decade ago when he was Minister of Strategic Affairs in Jerusalem. He's now Israel's ambassador to that weapon of mass discussion known as the United Nations. We're honored that he's taken some time out of his busy schedule to join us on the FDD Morning Brief today. Welcome, Ambassador Erdan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I like the uh, weapon of uh, mass discussion. I'll use it. Okay, it's yours. Um, look, I've got a couple questions for you this morning, and thanks again for taking the time. My, my first question to you is this. Israel is fighting a war that is unprecedented in military history, from what I understand. The simultaneous battles above and below ground against the terrorist group that clearly cares little about the laws of war, human rights. This jumps out at me as something that the public is yet to fully understand. But then there's another battle. What should the public know about this war when it comes to the UN? Well, I think that uh, the public and, uh, of course, the international community should understand uh, two very important things about the war that we are conducting in, in Gaza. The first thing is that this war is much broader, broader than Israel against Hamas. We are fighting against radical jihadists. It's not only Hamas, it's also Hezbollah, it's the Houthis, and they're all under the, being directed by Iran, 
those are radical jihadists that wants to achieve world domination. Israel is obviously the vanguard of civilization, but if Israel is defeated, if Israel cannot achieve uh, its goals and to obliterate Hamas's terror capabilities, for sure it will inspire many other radical jihadist organizations all across the globe. And as we used to say, the West is next. It's not only Israel that will be attacked. So one needs to also understand what is this test that they are trying to test all of us. They are trying to exploit our values against us. How do they do it? Because we know, we, we see their strategy. You mentioned it, uh, uh, Jonathan. They know Hamas, like other terrorist organizations, that they cannot defeat the IDF. Uh, they're, they're not strong enough. We are advanced. We are technological, like uh, other Western militaries. So what do they do? They embed themselves behind and under civil, the civilian population. They do not only want to increase the death toll uh, among our civilians, they want to increase the death toll in Gaza because they know it will create pressure. The liberal media is going to show the footage in Gaza. And obviously, we mourn the life of every civilian. But if the world doesn't understand that it should hold only Hamas accountable for whatever is happening in Gaza, we might all fail. So what we are seeing until now coming out from the UN is exactly the opposite. Instead of supporting Israel battle to eradicate Hamas, a designated terrorist organization, we just hear calls for a ceasefire, uh, things that are giving hope for the terrorists. So sadly, right now, I think that the world is failing, but Israel is committed to continue until we eradicate Hamas and release all the hostages. Well, it's clear to me that the UN is not capable of resolving this conflict. I think that's come through loud and clear. But in fact, if we're to be honest, the UN is making things worse, as I think that you have just indicated. Is the UN, in your view, I mean, you've now been at this job for a while, is the UN incapable of being a more constructive actor, in your opinion? Sadly, I would say uh, no. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, the UN has become uh, destructive. I mean, we it's not only the calls for a ceasefire. We heard the Secretary General right after the massacre uh, giving some justification, explaining that uh, the massacre, the October 7th, did not, did not happen in a vacuum. Only yesterday we heard uh, the Undersecretary General explaining that Hamas is not a terrorist organization. So one should ask himself, what happened? What happened to the organization that back in 1947 voted on the partition plan, voted to establish a Jewish state? How it become so toxic, so biased uh, against Israel? And I think that the answer is quite simple. You just have to look at the political makeup of the UN. Because in 1947, there were only 57 member states uh, at the UN. Plus, minus, most of them shared the same values, positive values. And today, after so many changes uh, in the world, we have 193 member states uh, in the UN. Most of them, more than 50%, are non-democratic at all. Uh, almost one-third of them, 56 member states, are Muslim countries that when Israel is fighting 
against any other Muslim entity, even when it's about Hamas, that many of the Muslim countries know uh, that uh, Hamas poses a threat against them as well. But still, when 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 the world see dead Palestinians in Gaza, so the Arab countries are more worried about the optics. They're they're afraid of having internal uprising in their own countries. So that create an anti-Israel majority uh, within the UN, and the Muslim group, of course, can multiply its political influence. So now add to this non-democratic majority with one-third of Muslim countries two things that uh, even exacerbated the situation uh, more. The fact that Russia invaded to uh, Ukraine and U.S. supports Ukraine. So Russia is looking now for ways to embarrass and criticize the United States. If the United States stands with Israel, Russia automatically supports Hamas and the Palestinians. We went back to the Cold War. You have two clear camps at the UN. If you're on on the US side, Russia will be against you. And the fact that it's very clear that it's a bipartisan issue now uh, here in the United States, the competition against China. Here's another reason for China to align itself with Russia, with Iran, with its allies. That's how you get this anti-Israeli automatic majority uh, inside the UN. Yeah, I think we could probably call that the tyranny of the majority. Uh, And that is obviously unfortunate to see what has happened to the UN. Uh, I want to talk to you about UNRWA for a second. It was recently exposed that UNRWA not only permitted Hamas to exploit its facilities, we learned about that server farm beneath uh, the UNRWA headquarters uh, in Gaza City, in northern Gaza. There was actually reports yesterday about uh, drones that were intercepted uh, being delivered by UNRWA into Gaza, military drones. We also know that UNRWA has employed terrorists who took part in the October 7th massacre. And then beyond that, We've heard uh, distorted and really Orwellian anti-Israel statements from other UN agencies. What are these UN professional bodies? I mean, why are they so obsessed with demonizing Israel, in your opinion? Well, uh, it it goes back to the explanation that I gave in the last question regarding the distortions within the, the General Assembly. And if there's something that I learned since I was appointed, uh, to be Israel's ambassador to the United Nations is the fact that the, the letters UN means nothing. They, they don't mean uh, any kind of legitimacy or credibility because once the General Assembly, the 193 member states, uh, it's politically distorted. So everything that starts there is also distorted. Again, we need to understand that the countries, the member states, they split the pie. They, the General Assembly is the one who decides upon the mandate and the appointments uh, within all these UN agencies. So that's when you ask yourself, how is it possible that Iran can lead uh, the social forum of the Human Rights uh, Council, the same country that is murdering thousands of its own civilian women, peaceful protesters, it's because because they were elected by the General Assembly. How is it possible that uh, out of the justices that are sitting in the International Court of Justice, another UN body, you can find uh, judges from Somalia, from China, from 
Iran, from Lebanon, and they are the ones who will decide whether Israel is committing a genocide in uh, in Gaza. It's it's crazy. So it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise uh, for me, uh, and uh, I think it shouldn't surprise anyone. Whatever we found in UNRWA, we've been saying it for many many years because the these those agencies were not established to function under terrorist regime, like uh, they try to function in Gaza under Hamas or in Lebanon under Hezbollah, they are being threatened. If they reveal or expose the truth or what they see or when Hamas uh, is uh, taking the humanitarian aid, stealing the humanitarian aid that they try to transfer, if they'll say it publicly, some of them might be, might, of course, will be murdered on the same on the same day. So if you ask me also what Israel can do, uh, obviously, the whole UN should go through a, a fundamental overhaul. We, we don't have enough time to discuss it right now. But temporarily, we have to take bold steps. We have to uh, cancel visas because many of the UN employees cannot enter Israel and the Palestinian Authority without our visas and permission. Uh, we have to expel them, those who exploit uh, their presence in Israel to spread lies and incitement against Israel uh, should be expelled. We just made this decision uh, two days ago uh, against Francesca Albanese, special rapporteur of the Human Rights uh, Council. And we should campaign to defund uh, those uh, destructive uh, agencies like Ryan. That's exactly what we've been doing the last few days. Let, let me ask you about one more agency. I mean, apart from UNRWA, which we know is just, uh, I think at this point, it's poison at the UN. But let me ask you about the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog. The head of the IAEA just warned that, is, that Iran has not been entirely transparent regarding its nuclear program. I know you take a dim view of the entire UN system, but the IAEA, is it at all capable of influencing Iran's behavior? I don't think I don't think so. I, I think maybe the IEA was better than a few other agencies uh, that uh, were working uh, and functioning within the Palestinian Authority. But still, the IEA uh, seems to be uh, frightened, uh, almost paralyzed. Even when they men mention, they don't really mention the grave violations of Iran when it comes to uh, its uh, nuclear. Uh, commitments, and you know what? Maybe I can understand them because they know that their 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 inspectors will be expelled immediately. They also know, which is more important, that they don't have the backing from uh, from the Western uh, world. They don't have the backing from the Security Council. I described uh, the paralysis and uh, the fact that Russia will veto today almost every resolution against uh, Iran. So when, when we all know that uh, without a credible military threat, which is the only formula to stop uh, Iran advancement, advancement towards becoming a nuclear uh, threshold state, so maybe I can, I can understand why the IEA is not, is not very effective. But I think it's also important to point out something that is happening in front of, of all of us. It's not only that Iran is not deterred. Iran today is more emboldened and audacious than ever. 
I mean, they, they, they are not afraid to, to uh, supply the Houthis with uh, intelligence and arms to attack maritime trade. They're not afraid to uh, attack American troops. I think more than 80 times, maybe I'm mistaken, maybe even uh, maybe more. And I hope that uh, the world uh, will see it and will see what's happening in Gaza and the fact that Iran publicly is encouraging Hezbollah also to expand the war against Israel and, and wake up because it might be too late. I mean, talking about the UN just recently, how crazy it can get. The foreign minister of Iran was invited to the Security Council to speak his mind about the war in Gaza. You know, it's like inviting the foreign minister of uh, Hitler to uh, speak about the security of the Jews during uh, World War II or the fact that uh, during uh, United Nations General Assembly, President Raisi, while he was murdering women in Iran, was getting the red carpet treatment here at the, in the UN hall. And I was the only ambassador, the, the, the ambassador of the Jewish state, to protest against him and to remind uh, him the murder of Mahsa Amini. So yes, it's it's even frightening to see how the world is not responding and understanding uh, what should be done to stop Iran. But for Israel, and we have to be very clear, since it's an existential threat, we are continuing to develop our military capabilities. And if push comes to shove, as we say, all options are on the table, and for sure now there should be, must be on the table. Okay, thank you, Gilad Erdan, for that sobering report from the UN, uh, and thank you for taking time out to join us today on the FTD Morning Brief. Thanks for having me, Jonathan, and continue your great, great work. Okay, here's what FTD's tracking today. Experts from FTD's Russia program are tracking the breaking news that Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption activist and opposition leader in Russia, has died in prison at the age of 47. Russia's security forces had infamously poisoned Navalny in 2020 before imprisoning him. Back in 2021, President Biden warned of, quote, devastating consequences, end quote, for Putin if this were to happen. All eyes now on the White House. My colleagues Mike Daum and Brad Bowman from FTD Center on Mil uh, Military and Political Power are out with a new interactive map that tracks the Iran-backed militia attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria and Jordan since October 17th. As we've discussed here, to date, there have been more than 165 attacks and only now 11 responses by the United States to these attacks. The map makes one thing crystal clear. If Washington is going to keep U.S. troops in harm's way to advance American interests, it's going to have to provide them with the means to defend themselves. It's time to impose real consequences and to make our adversaries think twice before attacking Americans again. And finally, some good news to end the week. My colleagues from FDD Center on Economic and Financial Power and our China program are processing the news of a recent discovery of 2.34 billion tons of rare earth elements found in Wyoming. FDD experts have long warned about the dangers of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to dominate the rare earth industry. If we play our cards right, this find could prove to be a true turning point for the United States in the era of great power competition. Okay, that's it for today.
Read our expert analysis on our website, ftd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax deductible donation at ftd.org slash invest. Tune in Monday for another episode of the FTD Morning Brief. You won't regret it. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer signing off for FTD. Thank you.